three. Thank you, Rusty. The 12th chapter of the Yikra, Leviticus, is one of the most controversial and misunderstood passages in the Torah. It speaks of rituals connected with women being sequestered after childbirth and the sacrifices they must bring to then return to full communal participation. The term of sequestering and the sacrifice is double when the baby is a girl and not a boy. This ordinance appears to label childbearing women unclean and doubly so when the newborn is a girl. What's going on here? In part, this controversy is rooted in misunderstanding the terms employed. The Hebrew terms tameh and tahor are not equivalent to the English terms unclean and clean, as some translations have it. Instead, they connote being temporarily disqualified tameh or qualified tahor for contact with holy objects and holy space. It was a matter of temporary spiritual quarantine. Then, after bringing required sacrifices and washing in living, that is, moving water, the woman was free to resume full communal access. What's the reason for all this mumbo-jumbo? Let's look at how people became tame, temporarily disqualified from contact with the holy. This could happen through contact with a corpse. It could happen to men having a seminal discharge and women in that time of menstruation. It could happen through childbirth and through having a loathsome skin disease such as leprosy. Conservative Rabbi Stephen Weiss tells us that when a person healed of such a loathsome skin disease offered a sacrifice marking their return to normalized status, this was sometimes called the sacrifice of one who has returned from the dead. And what do these bodily conditions all have in common? It's a good question. They all involve contact with the mysterious boundary between life and death. The reason we become ritually separated at such a time is to acknowledge that we have touched that boundary. It is to remind us of the wonder of it all and to provide occasion to recover equilibrium before returning to full participation in religious communal life. This time of waiting was a time to pause, to wonder. And why were women required to give 
this sacrifice and remain quarantined for double the time when giving birth to a girl? That's a great question. This is because such a birth doubly put her in contact with the boundary between life and death because a female child would herself be able to bear children. See it as a tribute to our first mother, Tachava, also known as Eve, of whom it is written in Bereshit, the man called his wife Chava, life, because she was the mother of all living. The capacity for wonder is fast disappearing in our day. But wonder is holy. It reminds us that there is something or someone beyond ourselves. Wonder causes us to sense and to seek God. I'm reminded of Seal Rosen of blessed memory. She was the wife of Moish Rosen. And she was an atheist until she was pregnant with Lynn, her first child. At that time, wonder overtook her, and she opened the door of her heart and mind to consider the source of all things wonderful. Wonder whispers, speaks, and even shouts about God. The eighth chapter of Sefer Tehillim, the book of Psalms, describes the spirituality of wonder. It says this, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you set in place, what are mere mortals that you concern yourself with them? Humans that you watch over them with such care. This is a perfect portrayal of how perceiving a beauty, an immensity, or a grandeur beyond ourselves causes us to realize how small we are in comparison. Wonder is profoundly theological because it moves us towards worship. And Paul considered this mystery when he said, forever since the creation of the universe, his invisible qualities, both his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen because they can be understood from what is made. Encountering the created order should inspire wonder, but that is not how paganized humankind responds, where the absence of wonder breeds idolatry. Paul tells us, therefore, they have no excuse, because although they know God and they know who he is, they do not glorify him as God or thank him. On the contrary, they have become futile in their thinking and their undiscerning hearts have become darkened. Claiming to be wise, they have become fools. They have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for mere images, like a mortal human being or like birds, animals, or reptiles. That's from Romans chapter 2. Paul is pointing out 
the inevitable decline into idolatry that overtakes people who have lost the capacity to wonder. We turn from wonder to being preoccupied with managing and accumulating the stuff of life, like the rich fool in Yeshua's parable, whose life was all about building barns and bigger barns, who stores up wealth for himself without being rich toward God. That's from Luke chapter 12. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel of Blessed Memory rightly insists, the beginning of our happiness lies in understanding that life without wonder is not worth living. Without wonder, our lives inevitably become self-referential. Sooner or later, without wonder, our lives become piles of moldering stuff. Albert Einstein got it right when he said, he who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead. His eyes are closed. How then may we open our eyes, making more room in our lives for wonder and for God? Yeshua provides the key to his disciples directly after describing the folly of the rich fool. He says this, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Think about the ravens. They neither plant nor harvest. They have neither storerooms nor barns yet God feeds them, you are worth much more than the birds. Can any one of you, by worrying, add an hour to his life? If you can't do a little thing like that, why worry about the rest? Think about the wild irises and how they grew. They neither work nor spin. Uh, yet I tell you, not even Shlomo in all of his glory was clothed as beautiful, as beautifully as one of these, Luke 12. The key is to pause and to contemplate the glories of God's creation. Whether like Abraham, considering the stars and the vaulted heavens, or by pausing to consider the beauties and the details of nature, the beauties of music, the effulgent richness of the created order. When I was a child, a little child, my Aunt Angela, early in the morning, used to take me by cab to the Brooklyn Botanical Gardens, where she would marvel at the delicate beauty of flowers. She was a woman who never lost her capacity for wonder. Have we? If so, then let's follow Yeshua's counsel and that of the psalmist. Consider the lilies of the field, 
and the moon and the stars that God has created. Look around you at the handiwork of God. Start noticing. Pause to wonder. Worship him. This morning when I woke up, I was looking at my hand. Let me, uh, let me give you a full screen here. This morning when I woke up, I was looking at the fingers of my hand and, 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 and how they work. And I was marveling at how God has created us with, with a capacity to make such sophisticated movements that serve us so well, like the hands of Vladimir Horowitz, the greatest pianist perhaps that ever lived. Pause to wonder. God bless you. Well, let's move on. Just one brief moment. Anyone have anything they wish to say before we conclude along the lines of what we've just been considering?